This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Kendra Scott Jewelry. Kendra Scott makes it easy to find something special just for her with jewelry at price points that don't break the bank, under $50, under $75, and under $100. Kendra Scott's affordable, high-quality jewelry comes with free shipping, free returns, and free gift wrapping. It's the perfect gift for this Valentine's Day, which is coming up soon. Use code MANLINESS for 20% off your purchase of $100 more at kendrascott.com or mention code MANLINESS in any Kendra Scott store nearby. Again, Code Manliness for 20% off your purchase of $100 more at kindrascott.com or mention Code Manliness at any Kindrascott store. Offer valid until February 14th. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Practicing minimalism with your possessions has been a trend for the past decade, and it can be a worthy practice as long as you use it as a means to greater efficacy outside your personal domain rather than just an end in itself. But there's arguably a minimalism practice that's even more effective in achieving that greater efficacy, digital minimalism. My guest has written the definitive guide to the philosophy and tactics behind digital minimalism. His name is Cal Newport, and this is his third visit to the AOM podcast. We've had him on the show previously to discuss his books, So Good They Can't Ignore You, and deep work. Today, we discuss his latest book, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. We begin our conversation discussing why digital tech feels so addicting, why Steve Jobs didn't originally intend for the iPhone to become something we check all the time, and why the common tips for reducing your smartphone use don't work, and why you need to implement more nuclear solutions instead. We then discuss the surprising lessons the Amish can teach you about being intentional about technology, how cleaning up your digital life is like decluttering your house, and why he recommends a 30-day tech fast to evaluate what tech you want to let back into your life. Cal then makes an argument for why you should see social media like training wheels for navigating the web, how to take those wheels off, and why you should own your own domain address. We end our conversation exploring what you should do in the free time you open up once your digital distractions are tamed and the advanced techniques you can use to take the practice of digital minimalism to the next level. I think you'll find this a tremendously interesting and important show. After it's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash digital minimalism. Cal Newport, welcome back to the show. Brett, always a pleasure to be on. So the last time we had you on was a few years ago to discuss your book, Deep Work. And in that book, you made the case that the ability to do really hard, deep thinking for long periods of time is a competitive advantage in today's world. You got a new book out, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. How is this book a continuation of your thinking in Deep Work? Well, one way to think about deep work is that it was about some of the unexpected consequences of technology in people's professional lives, right? So we we introduced these new technologies into the workplace, and it ended up severely diminishing people's ability to focus. And this had all sorts of consequences, but also opened up interesting opportunities. So, you know, I released that book, and I I was out on the road talking about it. And one of the most common pieces of feedback I started getting was people saying, okay, maybe we buy your premise about what technology is doing in our professional lives, but what about our personal lives? And arguably, it seemed like this was an even more urgent issue for a lot of people. That sometime, maybe the last two years or so, you know, I really started to notice and they really started to notice a change. You know, People had begun to shift from making self-deprecating jokes about how often they check their phone to starting to become actually worried. They're actually thinking, you know, the, the digital things in my personal life are starting to actually substantially degrade the quality of my life uh, and something has to change. And so I was hearing this shift, this increased urgency, this increased concern from my readers. And so that really turned my attention pretty quickly to, okay, what's going on here? How are these technologies affecting people's personal lives? More importantly, what's really the right way to get out of a lot of these issues? And that's, that's where these ideas came from. So what were people saying that how technology was detrimental to their personal life? Well, one of the, the things I noticed in these conversations is that it was, it was not about usefulness, right? I mean, if you take any one of these technologies that people use in their personal life and look at it in isolation, it's not useless, right? There'll be some value to it. There's some reason they use it. It's not like cigarette smoking or something where they just say, there's no value to this. I just wish I wasn't doing it. The problem people were having was the cumulative impact of all of these things combined. And they were finding that they were using 
their devices and looking at screens more than they knew was useful, more than they knew was healthy, often to the extent in which it was starting to significantly keep them away from things that they knew was more valuable. And there was also this rising fear that they felt like things like how they felt, uh, what they believed, their emotions were being manipulated. That these were these were they were starting to be manipulated in some weird sort of obscure algorithmic way into, into what they were what they were thinking about and how they felt and what they were believing, and so there was this this overall sense of of creaking creeping lack of autonomy. You know, I'm losing out on things that are more important. I'm starting to get manipulated. This is shifting from hey, isn't this fun or funny? How often we look at our phones to uh oh, something something actually bad is going on here. Right, and I guess another issue that comes up too is that one of the things that technology can get in the way of your personal life is actually connecting with other people, like really connecting. So I think you have, you have a section in there about the book, like we've replaced connection with, or we've replaced conversation with connection. And we think it's the same, but it's not. Yeah, it, it, this was actually an interesting paradox you see in the research literature, that if you spend time really trying to read a bunch of papers about, let's say, social media and people's well-being, you start to see that there's these two parallel tracks so there'll be these papers out there that say social media use makes people happier. Now, I should point out almost every one of these papers has at least one Facebook data scientist on, on the list of co-authors. But, you know, you have those papers. But then you have these other papers that are by very serious scientists, university scientists, that are saying using more social media is making people more lonely and depressed and unhappy, right? So what's going on? How can both of these things be true? And it turns out what seems to be happening is uh, it's not so much that the specific thing you do when you're using a social media app makes you unhappy. It's that the usage of these apps is keeping you away from real-world communication. It's reducing the amount of time you spend doing old-fashioned conversation, talking to someone in person, spending time with someone, being on the phone with someone, actually like hearing the subtle nuances of their voice, reading their body language, actually making some sort of real sacrifice of your time to actually spend time with someone. And this is a big problem. And, and so the reason why using more social media is making people feel more lonely is that it's pushing out old-fashioned interaction. And old-fashioned interaction is something that we crave and we need. And our brain more or less doesn't accept the digital equivalent as a, a reasonable, comparable action. So we think that we're being very social because we're clicking like a lot and leaving comments on people's social posts. Uh, our brain, though, formed through hundreds of thousands of years of social evolution, doesn't think that's socializing at all. So it just feels lonely. And so that's how we get that paradox that you, you, know, you think you're being really social because you're on your phone all the time, always swiping on things and tapping on things and hitting hearts and clicking little thumbs up. But our brain doesn't see any of that as real socialization. So we end up actually more lonely than before. So we, how, do, how did we get here? I thought that was really interesting. You, have, you talk about the history of how we got to this moment in 2018 where we're communicating in memes, right? We, we, we show our connection with people with a thumbs up or a, you know, pressing a heart. You know, it's interesting because back into the 2000s when the iPod came out, there seemed there really wasn't an intention by Silicon Valley to create this new social ecosystem. It sort of happened by happenstance in a lot of ways. It's a lot more recent than many people think as well. So even when the iPhone came out, uh, this was not at all the intention. So I actually went back and talked to one of the original project leads on the iPhone back when it was originally released to the public in 2007. And what he emphasized is that Steve Jobs' vision, like with lots of Steve Jobs' visions, was taking something that people already really valued and saying, I can make the experience even better. And so the idea behind the original iPhone was twofold. It's going to be a better iPod than we've ever had before. And two, the phone features are going to be better than other phones, right? Uh, the, the way this engineer said is Jobs said that this was supposed to be a phone that played songs, right? And he just wanted to do those two things better. And these were things that had long been established as things that people like to do. People like to listen to music. People like to make phone calls. Jobs says, I want to take these things that we love and, and make the experience better. And so if you actually go back and look at the original keynote address where Jobs introduces the iPhone, it's not until about 30 minutes into it that he even starts really talking about, you know, the internet features or the communication features. The first 30 minutes are really focused on the iPod features and the phone features uh, because that's what he had in mind. There was no app store when the iPhone was released. This, this engineer confirmed to me that Steve Jobs was very worried about the idea that you would let people's third-party apps run on the phone. He didn't want to sully the phone with third-party apps. It was supposed to be a very, very good phone 
and a very, very good music player. Right. So even as late as 2007, this idea that we would be constantly checking a screen didn't exist. That wasn't on anyone's radar screen. It wasn't really until the large social media giants figured out how to make money from people looking at an iPod or iPhone screen that we really saw this drastic shift towards the, the world we see today in which people are just constantly engaging with technology. And as I imagine, Facebook was the, the first company that really figured that out. Yeah, Facebook, you know, they had an IPO pending. They weren't making a ton of money off of their browser-based platform. And so they, they said, we have to get uh, a lot more aggressive about trying to monetize our users. And that's when they realized the shift to mobile would be the way to do it because people had their mobile phones with them all the time, right? So they could, they could get, in theory, a lot more engagement, which they needed because if you're using it more, they get more data about you. And if you're using it more, that's more time to show you ads, right? So the key was, how can we get people to take Steve Jobs' beautiful phone and iPod out of their pocket 85 times a day and click on our app and look at it? And they realized, okay, what we're going to have to do is actually engineer in moderate behavioral addictions into our service. And that's where you start to see these apps really take off with features that are were created mainly to exploit psychological vulnerabilities in its users, to try to get people to obsessively and compulsively check this so that they could create the revenue numbers that originally Facebook needed to show investors for its IPO to be a success. And so it really was Facebook, which is why anyone who was an early user of Facebook has this split experience where they have an old memory of Facebook being something they would, you know, sometimes log on to on their computer and check on some things. And then they have this new memory of them obsessively and compulsively using it. What happened in between there is that Facebook figured out, okay, we can attention engineer this thing to be compulsive and we'll make a lot more money. And then once they had that idea, everyone else sort of jumped on the bandwagon as well. Well, so what are some of these tactics that Facebook pioneered and other apps use now to keep people constantly checking their phone? Well, they really were interested in sort of social-related psychological vulnerabilities. So, And a lot of this, by the way, comes from, uh, in part, the research of the NYU professor Adam Alter, who's really looked into the, the psychological hooks, but also from Tristan Harris, who is a former Google engineer who became a whistleblower and started writing about, hey, this is what we're doing. <laughs> this is what this company, you know, this is what's happening at, at these various attention companies. And so what was revealed through the sort of this whistleblower and researchers like Tristan and Adam is that hijacking the social apparatus in, in your brain is a good way to get people to keep looking back. And so one thing they'll do, for example, is they introduced a lot more social approval indicators into these apps. So a social approval indicator is some way that someone else can indicate to you that they thought about you or were thinking about you, right? The original structure of social media didn't have a lot of this. It was more you would post things and then people could see it. So like, here's a baby picture and people could see the baby picture. But when they added things like the like button, right, there's a reason for that. Because now the like button meant that's a lot more social approval indicators. It's very easy for people to indicate to you that they were thinking about you. And they added more and more of these things. Like uh, tens of millions of dollars were invested, for example, to figure out how to do the facial recognition required to do auto tagging on photos. So that when you take an Instagram photo, it can say, hey, our algorithms looked at this photo and we think this person in the photo is, you know, so-and-so. This is Brett. Do you want to tag him? Click a button to say yes. Uh, why did they spend so much money to solve that really, really hard computer science vision problem is because it was another stream of social approval indicators, right? They're always looking for ways that people can easily indicate that they're thinking about you. Because human psychology says, if clicking on this app might reveal new social approval indicators, it's almost impossibly irresistible to do so. That if I click on this app, I might see an indication that someone was thinking about me. That's very, very hard to resist. And once they added those social approval indicators, usage minutes of the app skyrocketed. Because now, instead of it being something that maybe you signed on to once a day to see what was going on, you had a constant reason to keep checking. Maybe there's a new indicator. Maybe there's a new indicator. And then you add on to that intermittent reinforcement. So sometimes when you click, there is nothing. And sometimes there is, right? Now you're becoming sort of almost impossible to avoid, right? Inter intermittent reinforcement is something that Las Vegas Casino Gambling has taken a lot of advantage of in the design of their games like slot machines. So you put those type of things together, which are all engineered, right? This didn't exist in the original social media. It's not necessary for the social media experience to be what it is. All of that makes clicking on these apps 
really, really difficult to avoid. Yeah, we had Adam Alter on the podcast a while back ago. And one of the things, the tactics he talked about that Instagram uses with that intermittent reinforcement is that sometimes when you check, there's no likes, but they'll kind of build them up. So when you check again, you have like 20 likes, right? And even though like someone was probably liking it already, you know, when you check the first time, they don't show you that right away because, you know, getting seen there's 20 hearts is a lot more like, oh man, I want to check again the next time. Yeah. And it's, it's important to emphasize that we think about liking as what you do on social media, but it's really, really arbitrary. And it really was not in the original design of social media. It was not there in web 2.0. I mean, this notion of liking things is entirely invented and spread to make the app irresistible. <laughs> and we're so used to it now, like, well, that's what you do on social media. But actually, if you just step back and are objective, you're like, well, it's kind of weird, like clicking on this thing, and it just sends like a one bit and there's like a little counter of like how many people click this thing. Like, why is that there? Like, objectively speaking, it's kind of weird, but it made these companies billions of dollars. And the other thing it gives you, it gives these companies is information about you that they can then sell more at more targeted ads at you. Exactly. What are you clicking on? What do you not? What do you like? What do you don't like? We can feed that all into machine learning algorithms, digest you to use Jaron Lanier's term into essentially a gadget that can then be put into our uh, ad making machinery. And, and beside these other whistleblowers that you mentioned, like even Sean Parker, who was the president of Facebook in the early days, even came out and said, yeah, we designed this thing to keep you coming back again and again and again so we could make more money. Yeah, there's a lot of this going on. You know, I spoke on a panel recently with Roger McNamee, who was one of the original mentors of Mark Zuckerberg, who who brought Sheryl Sandberg on the Facebook. And, you know, he wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post saying, I wish I hadn't mentored Mark Zuckerberg, even though the company probably made him a lot of money. So there's a lot of this going on where people are having second thoughts about uh, what they've wrought. And so, yeah, as we can see, this could cause a lot of anxiety and angst in people because you're constantly checking things for social approval. And if you don't get it, well, then you feel terrible about yourself because someone didn't arbitrarily, you know, like something for whatever reason. So it causes you to like post another thing, hoping that someone will like that thing. So it becomes sort of this weird arms race with yourself to get these digital, I don't know, status boosts. Yeah, and it's playing with fire too, because the the social aspects of our brain are incredibly powerful. There's a, a massive amount of our neural processing goes towards social processing because it's such a big part of our species survival is being able to cooperate and work together in social groups. So our brain really, really cares about these things. So it's very dangerous to start toying with it, right? I mean, our, our brain knows nothing about digital technology or social media. So you you bring these apps that are, you know, born out of incubators in Northern California by 20-year-olds in hooded sweatshirts or whatever. You bring these apps and you put them into your world and they start manipulating and messing around with the social circuitry of your brain. It can cause a lot of problems because that's a very sensitive and powerful portion of the brain. Just like when, you know, the 20th century, we were able to refine really pure chemicals. We figured out how to do the chemistry of this. It created drugs that our brains couldn't handle because it was hijacking, you know, very sensitive, powerful parts of our brains once we could have purified opioids or these type of things. And so we're really playing with fire, right? You start messing around with something as fundamental as our drive to be social. And you, you start messing around with that in a completely novel context, like a digital screen and doing so for, you know, purposes of, of whatever manipulation, there could be a lot of really big consequences. I mean, it's, it's a really a dangerous thing to mess around with. Yeah. One consequence, we had another guest a few years ago, a psychologist talking about you know, social status and things. And he, one of the research that came out that suggests that whenever you uh, get a status boost, like serotonin, I guess, increases whenever you feel a sense of status, like you're parts of your prefrontal cortex basically shut down, right? And so you, you think less, right? You think less critically because you'd rather have the serotonin boost than like do the right thing. And so he, he suggested that this might be why some people just post crazy stuff that they probably, if they just took a step back and think, they wouldn't have posted it, but they did it because they knew it would give them some sort of status boost. So they post some sort of outrageous thing that will get lots of engagement and likes and comments and things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you certainly see that on Twitter, for example. And I've interviewed a lot of people, very active, sort of well-known, you know, blue check verified Twitter style users who, who will tell the story that there's this, this weird drive towards extreme versions of whatever you believe. And, and that's probably the, the underlying mechanism going on is that your serotonin system is being hijacked by these sort of little visual retweet 
and you know heart counts and you I want more I want more I want more and you look up you know 3 days later and you're like wow this is um whatever I'm I'm completely you know trashing this person or saying like I'm going to come after your kids or have some really extreme version of my view or say like if you don't agree with this you're Hitler or something it pushes you so quickly to extreme places because you know, again these systems are very very powerful and you start messing around with them you're going to have consequences and so this is why you're starting to see people take a step back and say I'm not liking how social media is affecting my personal life. I don't feel like a good person when I'm on social media. Yeah. So you get those two things. One is I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't like the way I act. I don't like how it, it how I express myself on it. And then you add to that just the more general thing is I don't like how much I'm using this. You know, I'm here trying to give a bath to my kid and I can't help but look at my phone. <laughs> and like the kid wants my attention. Like you know that you you know that that it's much more important to be paying attention to your kid in the moment, and yet you're still looking at the phone. Like so, these are the type of things that I think have led people in the last couple of years to say there's got to be a better way. All right, so there's the problem. Let's talk about the solution. For a lot of people who want to concentrate more and be less distracted and have social media have less of an influence on their life, you argue that they typically resort to like modest hacks and tips to reduce their you know, the amount of time they spend on social media. What are some examples of those? And then this, the follow-up question that is, why don't you think those are enough? Yeah, this has certainly been the initial response to people recognizing that this is a problem has been hacks and tips. So you, you've probably heard a lot of these, uh, like turn off notifications. Uh, you know, turn off the notification on the phone, you'll be a lot better. Or take a digital Shabbat. You know, have a day each week in which you don't use your technology, that'll help. Or, you know, try to try to find, you know, something you do each day where you don't bring your phone with you. So sort of assorted tips and tricks. These aren't working. It's not working. It's completely underestimating sort of the scope of the problem. The appeal, the irresistibility of what's in your pocket on this phone, the social pressures, the cultural pressures are so strong that just a handful of these tips and tricks is is not going to create the reform in what your everyday life is like that you're looking for. And, you know, I think a really good analogy is health and fitness. So, you know, we saw in the the second half of the 20th century, a a big rise of, of, you know, the processed food industry in the West, especially in America, right? We had all this processed food that was not healthy for us. And so, of course, we saw obesity went up, diabetes went up, heart disease went up. There's a lot of negative health consequences. And what we discovered is that simple common sense tips like, hey, you should move more or try to eat healthier didn't work, right? This wasn't taking people who were having huge problems with like obesity or diabetes or something, and and suddenly they'd be really healthy, right? It was, it was too small given the, the powerful appeal of these foods and the cultural pressure to go to fast food. And so what did end up working? Think about anyone you know who's really healthy. Almost certainly they have some sort of strong, aggressive named philosophy, you know, lifestyle philosophy that they live by. So maybe they're vegan or they're paleo or they're like a CrossFit fanatic or whatever it is, but they have a a really strong internally consistent philosophy about how to live that's built on clear values and has its own internal logic. And only that is really strong enough for them to resist all these urges. So almost certainly that's what we need in the digital space is people have to treat this problem more seriously. Uh, And instead of just tips and tricks, have actually a strong philosophy for this is how I manage my digital life. All right. So your philosophy is digital minimalism. So what is that philosophy? So digital minimalism says that you should essentially wipe the slate clean of all these different things that are pulling at your uh, attention in your digital life. Wipe the slate clean. Ask, what is really important to me? What are the things in my life that really matter, the things I want to spend time on? And then for each of those, say, okay, what's the best way to use technology to support these things? And let the answer to that question be the technologies you let back into your personal life. So you're essentially decluttering all of the junk out of your digital life and starting from scratch and very intentionally and carefully putting back in a few digital behaviors that give you huge wins, huge benefits. So it's very intentional and it's very selective. And so it's a lifestyle that you know what technology you're using, why you're using it. You're almost certainly going to be looking at screens much, much less than most of the people you know, all the while still getting huge benefits from a lot of these new innovations. So let's dig into these three principles a little bit more. So the first principle is uh, clutter is costly. And I loved how you talked about how Thoreau um, and his experiment at Walden Pond can kind of highlight 
or uh, give us insights about the cost of digital clutter. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, it's, it's an important point because in any sort of minimalist movement, the objection that people worry about is that the things they're saying no to seem like they have some value. So maybe they're leaving value on the floor, right? I mean, it's, it's very worrisome. This idea that you just focus on a small number of really important things uh, to the exclusion of everything else, people get very worried about, well, what about all the little bits of value? Wouldn't I be better off doing the important things and adding these other sources of value as well? Uh, but the core idea behind why minimalism works is that actually the clutter itself of having too many things in your life has such a big cost that you're better off not having all those small things. And this was essentially what Thoreau was trying to explore when he went to Walden Pond. I mean, I'm a big fan of Thoreau. I've, I've been studying him for years. Walden is often incorrectly characterized as a nature book. That it's like an environmentalist book, that it's about nature and the importance of nature. It's actually mainly making a, a pretty aggressive and interesting economic argument, right? So what Thoreau was trying to figure out is how much do I actually need to satisfy like my basic needs of a human? How much money do I need? Right. That's why he went out to Walden and kept very careful tabulation of exactly how much he spent on the nails he used to make his cabin, the food that he had to buy and consume. He kept track of all of this. And then he figured out, okay, at the, at, at my skill level and the going labor rate, how much would I have to work to support these basic things? And he figured out it was about one day a week. Right. And so he was figuring out this baseline of, okay, it takes about one day a week of labor to support my basic needs. And the reason he was out there observing nature was to try to indicate that, hey, once your basic needs are met, you can actually have a pretty interesting life as long as you're willing to, you know, like he is, stare at ice for an hour and <laughs> look at his different properties. And then he makes this really big argument about where people get pushed awry when thinking about bringing stuff into their life, like I want a nicer Phoenician blind. She talks about, I want a nicer copper pot, the farmer that mortgages more land so they can make a little bit more money to get a, a cart or something like this. He says, they only think in terms of what's the value I'm going to get from this new thing, but they don't think about what am I going to have to give up in terms of my life in order to acquire this thing. And so his experiment was, okay, it only takes a day of my life to meet my basic necessities. So everything else, I'm giving up time I don't have to give up. So what's actually worth giving up time of my life for? And his basic calculation is that most of the stuff that most of the farmers he knew around him in Concord, Massachusetts were toiling so hard to afford was not worth the amount of their time and life that they had to sacrifice to get it. And his clever example was getting a wagon for taking your, your produce to the market. And his calculus was, okay, you know, taking the wagon instead of walking to the market might save you an hour because it's faster. But if you actually do the math, it's costing you about three or four hours of extra work a week to afford it. So actually, you're way worse off, right? You've, you've lost a lot more time trying to support this wagon than if you didn't have it at all. And so the way that he thinks about things, where you say you can't just think about what's the value I'm going to get from having this thing or using this thing, but you also have to say, what's the price I'm paying in terms of my life force into exchange to get this thing? You have to put both of those things into the equation. And that's what's happening with a lot of these digital behaviors. Yeah, they all bring you some benefits, but they also are bringing you harm. They're taking your time and attention away from other things that could be more valuable. They're fragmenting your time and day so you get less satisfaction of other things. There is actually a really big cost to this clutter that's hidden behind the sort of top line headlines about isn't this a nice little benefit you get from having this app? Right. So what this is, principle is like, think about the opportunity cost with your attention and your life force, if we can call it that. Yeah. He was sort of the original person to really emphasize these opportunity costs really matter. Don't ignore them. And so going on to that, the second principle is, you know, understanding the importance of like diminishing returns, right? Like there, at a certain point, your social media use or whatever, it has some benefit, but at a certain point you don't get any more. In fact, it starts going down. Yeah. So this is a, this is another key point to minimalism, which is that you don't just, you don't just ask the binary question, you know, do I use this service or do I don't? You also ask the more specific question, how do I use this service and why? Right. So minimalists are always trying to optimize, you know, how do I get the, the biggest ROI on the time required to use this thing? And a lot of people in the digital space don't do this. They'll, they'll have some reason to use Facebook. Let's say there's a community group that's important to them. And this group organizes using a Facebook group. And then they'll allow that justification to then be the reason that they're on their phone on Facebook two hours a day. 
you know, because it was just a binary question of like, do you use Facebook or not? But a minimalist says, no, 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 you, you have to optimize. If you optimize how you use these things, you get much, much bigger bang for your buck. And so the minimalist might say, the only thing I want to do on Facebook is check on this Facebook group for this community organization I care about. How am I going to do that? Wednesday and Sunday night on a desktop, not on my phone. It takes 20 minutes. I have a big complicated password that's on a post-it. So it kind of a bit of a pain to do. And now I'm getting most of the benefit that I need out of Facebook and it has a minimal footprint on my life. So optimization of how you use the things you choose to use is almost as important as just the binary decision of, of what's on your phone and what's not. So that leads to principle three, which is to be intentional. And I love the example of the Amish, how the Amish can teach us how to be intentional with our technology, because oftentimes we think the Amish are just like complete Luddites. They don't in- incorporate any technology, but that's not true. Yeah, the Amish are an interesting case study. People do incorrectly think that they just froze their technology maybe in like the late 18th century or something like this. And it's not true. I mean, the the way the Amish actually function is that they have a really core principle, which is the community matters above all else. The strength of their community matters above all else. And so when new technologies come along, they go through a decision-making process. Is this going to make our community stronger? Or is it going to make our community weaker? And if it's going to make it stronger, then we can adopt it. And if it's not, we're not. And often the way they'll do this is they'll test it. So they'll, they'll have essentially the Amish equivalent of an alpha geek. Use it. Like, great. Here's, here's a cell phone came along. Use a cell phone for a while. Let's watch it. Let's see what happens. You know, here's a car. Great. Someone buy a car. Let's watch. Like, does this make things better or worse in terms of the thing we really care about, which is community strength? And that's why if you if you study actual old order Amish communities, you see all sorts of interesting technologies. You'll see diesel engines and solar panels and really complicated fertilizer systems. You'll see disposable diapers for sure. All this is really modern stuff, but you won't see phones in people's houses, automobiles, or connection to the electric grid. Yep. So what's going on is it's they're evaluating what strengthens our community and what weakens it, right? So Disposable diapers are really great and they don't weaken the community. So of course we're going to use those. But having a phone in the house, maybe then I'm not going to go actually visit my neighbors. I could call you on the phone and it could weaken the community. So maybe we don't want that. Uh, The automobile, they're really worried about because then people can leave the community and go other places and it really hurts the community cohesion. So they're really against automobiles. But tractors, they're fine. And oftentimes they'll take the pneumatic wheels off the tractors so that it's fine to drive through the, the fields, but it'd be difficult to use as a car. So they do this really complicated calculus. And so there's a lot of inconveniences to be Amish because they don't use a lot of things that are convenient, like the electric grid or cars. But somewhat surprisingly, if not bafflingly, this, this order has existed for 300 years. And it's not like they're in isolation, you know, in North Korea somewhere where they don't know there's a better way. I mean, they're riding their buggies next to McDonald's in Lancaster. They all spend at least a year living in the normal world during Rum Springa, right? So it's, it's not like they've been hidden from the real world, but the, this community has persisted. And my argument is that this is in part because the positive power of being very intentional about what you do in your life. So in their case, really trying to support their community can really far outweigh the conveniences you lose by making those intentional decisions. So the Amish have introduced lots of inconveniences into their life by being wary about a lot of modern technologies, but they persist in part because of the value they get out of being really intentional about how they live their life. And so this is a big reason more generally why minimalism is powerful, is when you're very intentional about what you want to do in your life, and you focus your technology only on these small number of things. It's true that you're probably missing out on a lot of little things that could be convenient, but my argument is that's okay because the positive return you're going to get by being so in control and intentional about your life is going to far outweigh the inconvenience of not having whatever latest app might have been useful in the moment. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Topo Athletic is an athletic footwear company founded by lifelong runner turned entrepreneur Tony Post. Tony was tired of the athletic shoe trends and marketing jargon at the big shoe company, so he decided to make shoes that deliver only what you need to access healthier and more natural movement and running patterns without the fluff. Unlike most athletic and running shoes, Topos are shaped like your feet. The Rumi Toe Box promotes functional foot movement in the midfoot and heel contour to the shape of your foot for a secure, locked-in fit. Topos cushion midsoles come in different thickness and heel elevations, so you can pick your unique level of protection and comfort. Topo Athletic makes shoes for road, trail, fitness, and active recovery. And it also offers a 30-day risk-free guarantee, so there's no reason not to give them a try. Everyone knows I'm a meathead barbell lifter, but I do do cardio. 
like to run, I like to hike. And when I do run, I like to do it on a trail. I don't like to do it on the road. So I've got the TerraVenture 2 trail shoe. Super comfortable. I love the roominess at the toe. I've got wide feet at that point. It's very secure. Feels great. I got the, the cushioning was like mid-level. So it's not too much, not too little. Plus they just look pretty dang cool. Now, if you'd like to get an exclusive 10% off your first pair, you can go to topoathletic.com slash manliness and use code manliness. So to get an exclusive 10% off your first pair, use promo code manliness at topoathletic.com. That's T-O-P-O athletic.com slash manliness. Do your body a favor and join the thousands of people who have done their research by visiting topoathletic.com slash manliness. Also by Indochino. Every man looks better and feels more confident when he puts on a suit, especially if it's Indochino. Indochino is the world's most exciting made-to-measure menswear company with suits and shirts that fit your exact measurements for unparalleled comfort. Just visit a stylist at Indochino's showroom to have your measurements taken, or you can measure at home, which I did, home yourself and shop online at Indochino.com. Then you choose your fabric, colors, any design customizations like the lapel, lining, pockets, buttons, and monogram. Then you submit, relax while your suit gets professionally tailored and mailed to you in a couple of weeks. I did this, got a navy blue suit from Indochino.com. First, you get to customize it, which is incredibly fun. So on this suit I got, I got no pleats. I'm usually a pleats guy, no cuffs. Usually I'm a cuffs guy. And then you have to choose the lining, customize it. The measuring process, super easy. In a few weeks, I got a made-to-measure suit sent to my door. This week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $359 at Indochino.com when you enter code MANLINESS at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit, plus shipping is free. Again, go to Indochino.com and enter promo code MANLINESS to get any premium suit for just $359 in free shipping. This is an incredible deal for a premium made-to-measure suit. Once you go custom, you don't go back. Check it out. Indochino.com, promo code manliness. And now back to the show. All right, so let's recap that. So basically, digital minimalism is being intentional about your digital technology use, thinking about the opportunity costs that come with having digital clutter, thinking about the return on investment you get from using these things, and then setting some rules for yourself and following those rules and like being happy if, you know, even if you miss out on some stuff because you don't use social media as much as other people. Yeah, like I've never had a social media account. And so I'm sure there's any number of little things that you could list. Like, well, you you don't get this benefit and you miss this benefit. But as a true digital minimalist, I don't care about missing out on those little things uh, because I'm much more interested in investing more time in the things that I already know for sure are really important to me. That if you want to look at the net happiness and satisfaction you know you have in your life, Investing in the things that you already know give you huge returns is almost always going to be the better strategy than instead dissipating that energy around a lot of things that give you small returns. You know, the big return things dominate. And so, I mean, I would say the the quick summary on how you operationalize these digital minimalist ideas is you really want to think about it like you're decluttering a house. You clear all of the stuff out of your digital personal life. So we're talking about your personal life. Work is a different thing. You clear all the optional technology out of your personal life and you start from scratch and say, okay, if you want to make it back onto my phone or onto my computer or onto the regular rotation of things that I check on my web browser, you've got to uh, make a really strong case. There has to be a really strong case that you're very important for something I really value. And when you do this decluttering process, you are almost certainly going to end up with much, much less things in your digital life. And you're almost certainly going to actually be getting more value out of the technology in your life than before. So it's this interesting paradox. You'll be looking at screens much, much less, but you'll be getting much more value out of the time you do spend with your devices. So let's talk about that declutter. So brass tack advice, one thing you talk about in the book is you start off with a 30-day tech break and you basically just, as you said, clear all the stuff off your phone. What do you think the 30 days, like staying away from it before you start reintroducing does to make this process, I don't know, more uh, seamless or more, uh, just work, make it work better? Well, you need two things that the 30 days give you. The first is a, a detoxing process. In my experience, and again, I've run about 1,600 people plus through this process so far, it takes about one to two weeks just for your mind to detoxify enough that it doesn't have this strong craving for especially the more engineered addictive services you spend time with. So you want to you want your mind to actually get a detox experience. And then you have a couple more weeks to actually spend time exploring and rediscovering what it is that you really value. And, and so this is worth serious thought, this sort of rediscovery of, okay, when I'm not just looking at my phone and my tablet, you know, all evening, 
what do I really do like to do? What really is important? And so I really encourage people to take this 30 days, not just as a detox process, but also a period of discovery to return to the type of uh, analog activities to sort of to use a terminology that's relevant to your audience, to the type of traditionally manly activities that people used to spend their leisure time with and, and rediscover and re-experience what's valuable, what you really like, what really gives you satisfaction. So that when it then comes time to do the reintroduction, you know what matters. And so you know, okay, this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter. Oh, I can use this tool in a way that's really going to make a difference. So it, you, you need some time to actually rediscover what it's like to live a real meaningful life. And one of the things I've noticed when I've taken you know, extended breaks from social media is that when I do come back to it, I realize I just don't like this. Like, because I think when you're like doing it all the time, you think like, okay, it's just a habit and you, it's something you do, but then you take a break and you come back and you realize, boy, this is really dumb. Yeah. And you just go away from it again. Yeah. There's a lot of arbitrariness that, that you kind of miss out on when you're using all the time. You're like, oh, this is just what people do. Right. And then you step away from it and you turn around and you're right. And it looks really weird. And this is a common experience with digital minimalists is because they look at their screens so much less than most people. Everyone around them thinks they're weird, but then the digital minimalists always have this matrix type moment where they look around and are like, wait a second, what other people are doing is incredibly weird, right? I mean, I'm not the weird one that I'm sitting here reading a book. I think the weird one is that, you know, everyone around me is looking at this little thing and tapping at it with their finger. You know, the digital minimalists are not the weird ones. I think it's the rest of us, <laughs> the rest of the culture that is, that's kind of gone into the, the, the unusual territory with their behavior. So you take the 30-day break. How do you go about reintroducing the the serv- digital services so that you don't go back into your old ways? A, a good way to think about it is don't even use the term break. Think of it as a decluttering, right? Like if you really want to clean out your house, the way you think about it is not, all right, I'm going to take everything, all this junk out of my house, and then after 30 days, I'll put it all back in, right? Like you're not taking a break from your junk. You're getting out of your house. And then after those 30 days, when you find it, oh, I'm really missing, you know, whatever, my potato peeler, like, let me go get that out of storage to bring that back into my kitchen. It's sort of the same thing with a digital declutter. So you're, ta- you're decluttering all this stuff out of your life, and then you can sort of step back and see, what do I really miss? Like, where am I finding, hey, not having this thing in my life is really having a big negative consequence. It's keeping me from something that's really important or diminishing the the benefit I'm getting from something that's really important. And as you discover these, these real needs for the things you've taken away, then you can reintroduce that particular thing back. But when you do, the key advice is don't just bring it back, put some rules in place all right, here is how and why I'm going to use this thing. And so it's just like the classic minimalist house decluttering trick. You know, you pack up the whole house and then you only bring back the things that you realize you need. And when most people do that, they find that, you know, 90% of their their possessions they actually didn't need. That should be the same experience you have when you do this with your digital life as well. So uh, let's get to those rules. So like what kind of, what are some examples of rules that you apply whenever you bring you know, a digital service back into your life? Well, you should think about when and how I'm going to use it and for what purpose, right? So you know, on what occasions or on what timing am I going to use this? And when I use it, what am I going to do with it? And let me be clear about what's the underlying reason. So a lot of digital minimalists uh, that I've worked with have particular needs to use particular social media platforms. And almost always when they apply these rules, they're not using it on their phone. They almost always determine that it's much better to have it on their computer. If it's on their phone, they're going to use it for other reasons. And they usually have a schedule on which they're going to use it. Another thing you see when people do these, you know, when and how and why type rules is uh, it changes their behavior. So there's, I've met several artists, for example, who get, important professional creative inspiration from Instagram, right? That that at the moment, I guess, in the art community, it's a place that a lot of people share works in progress or things they're working on. And creative inspiration is very important if you're an artist. And so a lot of artists that become digital minimalists, for example, will say, okay, that's important to me, right? Creating art and being inspired is important. And this is a, a, a source of inspiration that technology has brought into the life that wouldn't be here otherwise. But they realized that maybe the way they were using Instagram before is that in addition to these artists, they were following lots of people and commenting and they were looking at it, you know, 90 minutes a day. And so they might, when they're looking at the sort of the, the when and how, they might say, okay, I'm going to be very restrictive about who I follow, right? So that's a common how rule that I'm going to reduce who I follow down to like the 10 artists who are most inspiring me at the moment. And then the win rule might be every evening. You know, after dinner, that's when I, I look at this for 20 minutes. And, and so it can mean different things, but basically when I use it, how I use it and reiterating the reason why you're using it, that's the key when you, you realize you want to add one of these things back. 
one of the rules that you talk about that could seem like crazy for a lot of people because you're just disrupting the way that social media is supposed to like works today is people should stop liking things on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recommend you, you uh, don't click like and you don't leave comments. And it, it does seem kind of disruptive, but what's, what's going on here is it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the interview, which is this notion that researchers are finding that that type of digital interaction really does not satisfy our human drive for sociality. One bit indicators, like, hey, someone click like or, or pure text indicators, like someone says, hey, great, or congratulations, or I'm rooting for you, whatever. These don't activate most of the social areas of our brain that are expecting instead a very rich analog stream of, you know, voice tone and modulation and body language, the type of things that we expect from social interactions. Uh, so we do not get a lot of social satisfaction out of these sort of lightweight uh, social connection type things. And so one of my strategies I advise uh, to digital minimalist is consider changing your mindset so that you say, from a social perspective, the primary purpose of things like social media or text messaging is logistical. It is here to help support an old-fashioned analog social life, Right. So text messaging is very valuable because it can help me uh, when I'm trying to meet my friend, you know, hey, no, I'm over at this bar, not that bar or something. And it's it's helping facilitate an old-fashioned analog social interaction. Social media in this context is maybe useful because I can find out that, hey, this person I knew for a long time is going to be in town. And now I can I can set up a get together with this person. I wouldn't have known they're going to be in town if I didn't see them on social media, but now I do. But seeing these tools is it's logistical. It's to support my analog old-fashioned interactions, and it's not a substitute for those interactions, is probably the, the healthier way to look at it. So once you stop counting social media and text interactions as real interactions, you'll realize like, oh, I'm not really that social. When's the last time I talked to someone? When's the last time I was on the phone? When's the last time that I was getting coffee with someone? And you'll feel that urge to actually get out there and do the things that really satisfy our human drive for sociality. So when I say don't click like, what I mean is change your perspective. You know, these digital connection tools, think about them as logistical things that makes it easier for you to do the same type of old fashioned face to face or uh, voice interaction that for for centuries has been at the core of our drive for human interaction. But how do you explain that to like friends and family? Because that's the weird thing about social media. There's like this weird etiquette that's developed. Like, well, if I like your stuff, you got to like my stuff. And if you don't like it, then that 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 signals some sort of you know rift in our relationship, right? Yeah, you you know, you just tell them I you know I don't use social media much anymore, right? I mean, that's like if you think about it, you usually know some people who are like that. You, there's probably a couple of Cal Newports in your life, you know, who who aren't on social media, or you know they are, but they really haven't used it in a while. And you basically you you step away from that particular attention marketplace. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult with text messaging. This is what I found. This is the feedback I've been getting. When people really expect you to respond to text messages, it can be a little bit harder, but basically you, you essentially teach people, like I, I often don't have my phone with me, so you know I'm not always able to respond right away. And people just learn and they adjust, and then they're usually more or less okay with it. And you know sometimes people get frustrated. The biggest thing you lose when you step away from thinking about social media as actually counting as social interaction is that you are going to lose probably some weak tie social friendships that were maintained exclusively through social media interaction. But I think that's fine. Actually, we as human beings, this idea that we need to maintain like well above the Dunbar number of sort of weak tie social interactions with people we barely know or, or knew a long time ago, there's no actual evidence that that's important for us thriving as humans or feeling socially connected or valued. So yes, you will lose those when you step away from social media as an actual means to socialize with people, but I don't think there's any actual loss to the strength of your social life or your happiness by doing so. Gotcha. And the uh, the other upside to like stop liking things on the internet, like inter- the social media companies know less about you is another benefit. And also I think you had an article about this not too long ago about how social media sort of encourages just like really crappy stuff on the internet because it's all based on vanity metrics uh, and not really on quality. So maybe if you stop liking crappy stuff because everyone else is liking it, you will start getting better stuff on the internet. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. And and more generally, I, I mean, I think there's a, not to get technical, but there's, there's an important distinction to make here that I've been writing about quite a bit recently, which is there's a difference between the social internet and social media, right? So the, the social internet is just the idea that you can use the internet to connect with people, express yourself and discover interesting information. This is a 
incredibly sort of powerful paradigm shifting innovation that we got along with consumer access to the internet in the 1990s, and in particular, the rise of the, the World Wide Web and the associated protocols, among other things, right? So the idea of the internet as a force for these type of things is very, very powerful, and, and I'm a huge booster of it. The thing that I'm less a fan of is this notion that we need to consolidate the social internet behind the walled gardens of these massive private companies. And that's really where the problems start to happen. When you have massive companies like Facebook say, look, you guys are too, you're too dumb to enjoy the social internet. It's too complicated for you. Here, we'll make an easier to use version of it, right? And we got to get everyone to sign on to our easier to, to use version of the internet, but we'll give you like a really clean interface and, and you don't really have to go discover things. We'll just kind of show you things. We'll, we'll watch you and see what you like. And you can just sit there, you know, like the, the people on the spaceship in that Pixar movie, Wally, just sit there and we'll just kind of feed you things that, that, that'll make you happy and you'll like it and don't worry about it. And, and the internet's too difficult for you to actually go out there and engage with. And, and so this movement of let's take the social internet, which is wild and decentralized and wonderful and disruptive and something I love. And let's, let's consolidate it you know, into a small number of private companies, that's where all the problems are happening. Like almost everything that people are upset about with social media today is because we thought that the social internet has to exist, you know, on the private servers of two or three companies. And, and so I like the social internet. I don't like social media. I think if you leave the, the walled garden of social media and go back out to the wild web, you can find interesting things. You can connect to interesting people. You can express yourself in interesting ways. And you can do it in a way that's just so much healthier because you don't have these sort of algorithmic forces trying to push you into weird extremes or to pacify you or to get you upset or to get you mollified or whatever's going on, you know, that, that's necessary to get revenue up at these private companies. When you go back out to the wild social internet, it's such a better experience. And so this is why I've been a blogger for a long time. I think the blogosphere, though weirder and harder to navigate, is, for example, a a much better repository of expression and information than say Facebook or Twitter is. And so this is definitely a movement I've been making is that, that Facebook wants us to think that it's fundamental. I think it's more like what AOL was in the 1990s, right? It was like the World Wide web with training wheels for people who didn't know how web browsers worked. I Facebook is just the social internet with training wheels, you know, for, for, people who who don't want to actually take the time to go out there and explore, you know, actual websites and different, you know, protocols and more peer-to-peer type stuff. And so I'm hope I, I want to make that distinction clear because I don't want it to seem like it's I'm, I'm curmudgeonly on these technologies. I just don't like the idea of consolidating all this stuff into these big companies. That really is the source of most of the problems. So maybe a, a digital minimalist rule would be delete your Facebook page, get a blog with your own name, you know, domain name and start posting yeah. stuff there. Yeah. You know, there's this exciting movement out there. It's called the indie web movement. And that's basically what it's saying. It's like, you need to own your own domain, have your own domain. You know, it's a server that you're renting from a local hosting company. You own it, you own all the content. And actually what, what we're seeing in the indie web movement, which I think is kind of exciting is that they're saying, you know, the way that the social internet should work is that everyone has their own domain. They have their own information. And then what people can offer uh, smaller companies can offer like social front ends where you can point your feed towards one of these companies. And then when you log into their interface, they can make it easier for you to find people and follow people or whatever. But the actual content is on people's individual servers, on their own blogs. They own it. They can point it towards however many of these services they want. This idea that everyone has to be in the same service and that service has to own all of their things and own all their data, there's, there's, it's just not necessary for there to be a vibrant social web. So let's go back to another tactic that you, you'll have to implement as you do this declutter. As you said earlier, uh, once you get rid of all this stuff on your phone, you're going to realize you have a lot more free time on your hand. And that's, that's a catch-22 because the reason why people go to their phones is because they're bored and they have a lot of free time on their hands. So what can people start doing to figure out like what to do with their newfound freedom or new free time now that they're not checking their phone all the time? This is a really important point and, and something that really became clear, especially as I worked with people who were going through this, this transition into minimalism, which is this notion that we have, we have a human drive, uh, among other things, for uh, quality leisure, you know, things that we do just for the sake of doing them. 
I go all the way back to Aristotle and the Nicomachean ethics, where he, he talks about this as, as far back as then. He really talks about the importance of sort of activity that's pursued just for the activity's sake, just for its intrinsic qualities. And th- we have this drive, right? I mean, you, you write a lot about this on Art of Manliness. You see these, there's a reason why these sort of old manly hobbies and woodworking and being an expert at this and that, there's a reason that resonates so much is because it's quality activity. You're mastering a skill for the sake of being good at something. We want that. We hunger for that. And if we don't have that in our life, we tend to feel a void, right? There's there's a large void. And one of the problems with this sort of very recent modern state of persistent digital distraction is that we can be distracted enough that you can paper over that void just enough that it's tolerable, right? And so you're like, okay, I can I can avoid having to actually, you know, develop real sort of manly quality skills and pursuits and hobbies in my life. If I can just look at look at my phone and my tablet enough, I can kind of tolerate not having that thing that I really crave. And so the issue, as you point out, is that when you then rip the Band-Aid off, so let's say you do the 30-day digital declutter, it can be really uncomfortable and disconcerting. Because now you have to confront that void in your life of what do you do in your time outside of work? And if you haven't taken the time to actually develop quality, high quality leisure pursuits, you're going to feel bad and you're going to be adrift and you're going to be sort of itchy and wanting to look at things. And so I often, you know, advise people, if if you're really, really into screens, you might want to take the time to develop these sort of old fashioned analog, high quality leisure pursuits before you even attempt a digital declutter so that when you do rip these things out of your life, you have something waiting to fill that void because it, I was surprised to the extent by which this was disconcerting to people when they tried to step away from their technology. They didn't realize how much they were missing in their life by not actually having high quality leisure. And they were so thrilled to discover how much meaning it gave them once they actually put in the time to reintroduce it. Yeah. Well, the other thing I've noticed too, is that uh, when you use screens a lot, like you, you often, like you forget how to develop that high quality leisure. Right. It's like like that's a skill that, you know, you you develop because it takes practice. And then when you stop using it, you're like, well, how do I get how do I get started? What what do I do? Because you haven't exercised that skill in maybe years. Yeah. And that's why I I get really instrumental in the book. I was like, okay, let me give you some like actual tactics. I mean, this is something that our grandfathers would think is crazy that we would even talk about this. Like, what do you mean you need tactics for how to, you know, have uh, high quality leisure. Like what do you, what else would you do with your time if you weren't, you know, building a canoe in your woodshed or, or, or what have you, or, or running a big community organization, the road, you know, the rotary club or whatever. And so, but yeah, we have to, we have to go back to tactics. So in, in the book, I, I get down to some basic things. I, I give out a plan about, okay, use YouTube how to videos <laughs> and systematically work up the complexity of things that you're fixing with your hands. I mean, it sounds almost trite, but it's a huge mind shift, right? Just this notion of, of going from my hands are basically used to manipulate digital screens to my hands manipulated something in the physical world. It didn't work and now it does. And your brain, it's like fireworks go off once you do that. They're like, yes, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Our, you know, we're supposed to be confronting the world physically and changing the world in ways that's positive. We're supposed to be, you know, holding the piece of wood and feeling the grain. We're supposed to be, you know, seeing the metal bend. We're supposed to be confronting the world. Our brains get really confused by like, all I'm looking at is glowing LEDs all day. Like, this is not what I'm used to from our evolutionary history. I also talk in the book about building leisure plans. And, and maybe this is just sort of hyper Cal Newportonian productivity stuff here, but, but, you know, some people need this. Like, these are some leisure activities that I'm working on. This is what I'm working on each week. This is what I'm working on each day. Like, systematically building yourself a schedule of doing high-quality analog leisure and building up what you're comfortable with. I mean, all of this is so important. It sounds, you know like optional, superfluous, like, well, you know, whatever hobbies, but you need this, right? Especially if you're going to go minimalist on your digital life, you need to go much more intentional on your analog life that replaces it. And it it can be pretty hard. Right. That system, that's why we developed the strenuous life last year on the art of manliness, just like providing a structure for people. It's like, well, I don't know what to do. It's like, well, do these things. Yeah. And they get going, it sort of greases the wheels and they start, you know, they find a new hobby and they get delved deeper into that. And that's been really cool to see. Yeah. And I'm not surprised that it's been popular. I mean, I, I think 
what's happening in the digital world is actually making the appeal of the analog world so much stronger, uh, again, in a way that would be completely mystifying to our grandfathers. Just the idea that you would do anything else with your leisure time of these type of activities would make no sense. You would have been doing it in every spare moment since you were four years old. But, you know, for our generation or younger, it can be completely novel. And like, that's why I think the strenuous life is a great, that, that program is great, right? It's not about, is it really important that you learn to do this particular thing? It's no, no, no. It's the fact that you're out there doing analog things just for the sake of doing them, just for the sake of mastery, just for the sake of adventure. And it's so important. And I, and I think that's also, I mean, you would know better, but I, it explains, I think, a lot of the growing renaissance in some of these sort of virtuous manliness movements like you're a part of, or you know, why characters like Ron Swanson resonate so strongly with people, even though he was supposed to be you know, a comic character, is because we miss these things and we feel it, right? We know that, I don't know, just swiping at this tablet, this doesn't feel right right? My, my shoulders are hunched over, you know, and I'm sort of in the back of the cafe and I'm swiping on this and clicking on emojis. And something about that just doesn't feel like this is what, you know, you know, I'm a grown man and this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my time. It just doesn't feel right. You know, we know there's something wrong here. And when we get back to using our hands, engaging in our community, spending real quality time with our family, you know, being an active dad for your kids, like all of this type of stuff that resonates, we know in our gut is the right thing to do. We feel it. And and I think we're feeling it stronger at the same time that the sort of attention economy conglomerates are trying to distract us from it as hard as possible. I love that. So let's talk about like last minute, like last thing, what are some like next level, like advanced level tactics in implementing digital minimalism? So far we've talked about, okay, you get rid of everything and you slowly introduce things that you're actually going to use. You set rules for how you're going to use those things. But let's say someone's like, man, I just, I'm, I'm tired of it. Like what can they do to like take this to the next level? So the most hardcore digital minimalists, uh, one of the things you'll see is they don't use smartphones. And that's actually a lot more common than you would think. I would, you know, there's a, I just read a, a article in the Guardian. So this, this came out around New Year's. So it was like on the, the second or third of January and the reporters, she's a literary critic and she read, she read the book and she's like, that's it. Uh, I'm done with my smartphone. And she writes about how, you know, switching over to what they call feature phones, but basically old fashioned phones, you know, with buttons and you can't touch the screen, how it's really improved her life. Right. And, and she's, she's bored more and just present more and, and doesn't feel that crushing weight. So that's something you see a lot of, like people will go away from their smartphones. You also see people being pretty aggressive about taking their computers and transforming them back into more like single tasking machines. So they'll use internet blocking software like Freedom very aggressively, right? So, okay, I can't access any, I can't access the web, for example, during this five hour period, or there's only like a two hour period at night where I can, I can even see social media. Like they really, really hamper down, really tamp down, like when they have access to things. A lot of digital minimalists like me just leave social media altogether. They like the social internet. Maybe they have a blog or maybe they say, I don't care. I'm, I, I have good friends that I see every week. I call my family on the phone. I'm a part of a community group. I don't need a, you know, a computer screen to be social. So definitely the more extreme digital minimalist, you see that. And finally, you see like much more aggressive engagement in analog activity. So, so minimalists, once they get away from these things that are void, you know, papering over that void I talk about, the extreme digital minimalist tend to become much more extreme in their analog activity. And, and so you get sort of Mr. Money Mustache style, like I'm out there, you know, renovating a building in my town or learning how to weld and, and building a rack for my truck, like this type of stuff, like really like a lot of time doing really highly skilled analog type activities. And so like, these are what the, the black belt minimalist, that's the type of things you'll see. No smartphone, really severely locked down computers, no social media, really big, almost old fashioned analog presence in their life. Yeah. And it's funny, the market's responding to this. So, you know, like, I, you know, there's strenuous life. You mentioned us, you mentioned Mr. Money Mustache. There's all these analog things, you can, like communities, like in-person stuff you can do now. But even like the devices, I just, um, there's this new phone, the Light Phone 2. Yep. I don't know if, have you seen? Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's like, it's a phone. You can listen to music, you can text and do directions, but that's about it. Like there's yep. no social stuff, which I think is genius. Yeah. And there's also um, phone tethering too. So the original light phone before the light phone too, the original idea there, I write about a bit in the book is you have your normal smartphone, but then you have this like second really simple phone. That's like the size of two credit cards and people can call you and that's about it. And 
so what you can do is basically put your phone into a mode where it all transfers to the light phone. And then you can go out and say, I have the light phone with me. So if there's an emergency, you know, my wife can still reach me or whatever. I can call, you know, the police or something if my car is stolen, uh, but I don't have any of the social stuff, but it, you still have your real phone. And what's happening is like things are getting forwarded to the light phone. So you don't have to keep two separate numbers. And so like, that's another thing I, that, that I, you see out there is this sort of tethering or, or just in general, this notion, um, you know, I really get into this in this book, this idea that like you have to have your phone with you is all the time is really recent and really unnecessary. And, uh, you know, I do this a lot and this is a growing movement among people where they really change their relationship with their phone. And they think like there's sometimes I need it for specific purposes, but it's not by default, right? It's not wallet keys phone. It's like wallet keys and sometimes phone. And so they'll, they'll spend much more time without a phone at all. And so you definitely see that as well. Yeah. So the market is responding for sure. Well, Kyle, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? So you can find the book anywhere books are sold. Also, my website, calnewport.com. I've been blogging there, a diehard blogger for over a decade. So if you're just curious, maybe dipping your toe in in these type of ideas, you can also uh, probably spend a little bit of time there as well. And you can subscribe to them via RSS feed, which I do. Which is awesome. Or, yeah, or old-fashioned emails, yeah. And as I like to say, since I have no social media presence, if you have any complaints about the books or any uh, diatribes you want to give or insults to me, I just uh, highly recommend that you share those, but you do so on social media. (laughs) There you go. Well, Cal, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thank you, Brett. My guest today was Cal Newport. He's the author of the book, Digital Minimalism. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out his website, calnewport.com. And while you're there, subscribe to his blog. It's one of my favorite blogs. Been following it for years. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash digital minimalism. We find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. If you want to check out The Strenuous Life, Cal and I talked about it during the podcast, check out our strenuouslife.co. You can see what it's all about, what we're trying to do with it, what happens when you sign up. And while you're there, make sure you get your email on our waiting list for our next enrollment, which will be around the end of March, 1st of April. So strenuouslife.co, check it out. And if you haven't done so already, I'd really appreciate if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay encouraging you to not only listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've learned into action.